morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, open it to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We'll read verse 1 through verse 10. Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time of worship that we've already enjoyed corporately this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us voices that we can lift and instruments that can be played and worship that can be done through song to lift our hearts and lift our voices up to you, to praise you, and to recognize through lyrics, biblical doctrines, and your character the assurance that we have in Jesus. And as we sang this morning, Lord, we ask this morning now as we transition to the preaching of your word that you show us Christ. May the word of God show us Jesus this morning and his preciousness and his ultimate importance and priority that he might have preeminence in our hearts and in our church and in our homes and lord we just ask that you would just pour out your blessings upon us that we might honor you deepen our understanding of your word that we might go high in worship we pray all this in christ's name amen so i want to just 
kind of introduce how this how we're going to go about this morning this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 it's not going to exhaust verses 1 through 10 but one of the things I want to do is when I got done studying this week it was way too long for one sermon right which is not un abnormal so what I want to do is I want to at least I want to get to the heart of the message and the heart of the what Paul's dealing with and then next week I want to I want to really hit hard the application for us and what Paul's saying here okay and so so this morning we're just gonna deal with the argument and what's going on what Paul's dealing with what they're trying to to lay on the on the Galatians and then next week I want to pick back up and summarize that in a way and then just launch off into the application of us like how, how does that impact us how can that help the church right how can that help Christians and Christianity? So we'll look at that next week. But um, I want to I tackle what Paul's saying here first. We're told in, in these verses that Paul, after 14 years, went up to Jerusalem again. It doesn't mean it was his second time. It just means Paul went back to Jerusalem. When Paul and Barnabas were in the church in Antioch, these same type of false teachers that are in the churches of Galatia came to Antioch, okay? And they were stirring up the same kinds of problems that they're stirring up in the churches of Galatia. They were stirring up in Antioch. And they were saying, and, and let me add this, what heightened this and what I believe caused Paul to go down to Jerusalem is because of this. What they were doing is not only were they going to Antioch, and, and they were saying things about Paul, but they were saying that they were coming there by the authority of the apostles and leadership of the Jerusalem church. Okay? And, and so when you go to Acts 15, you find out that what the leadership and apostles that were in Jerusalem end up saying is, no, they, they weren't coming on our authority. And we don't agree with what they're saying in Antioch to the church at Antioch. So you can... Go read that in Acts 15. But what they're saying is, listen, Paul's gospel, it's not enough. It's, he, he's not really an apostle. He wasn't with Jesus like Peter and, and James and John. And, and so um, his gospel's not the full gospel. Um, his, his gospel doesn't truly make you acceptable to God. Paul's gospel doesn't truly gain you acceptance into the family of God. And, and these false teachers were claiming to have come again from the church in Jerusalem with the backing of the Jerusalem apostles and leadership to convey this message. So it was quite concerning. Um, you can understand if someone came to the church of Antioch and was saying that, um, that there would be concern. In Acts... Uh, the very council in Acts 15 shows us, as I stated just a moment ago, I got ahead of myself, but shows that they were not there on the, the, the credentials of the apostles in Jerusalem or the leadership in the Jerusalem church, and they were actually voted down, said they were wrong, and they weren't there um, with that backing. And so when you look at Acts 15, what, what immediately jumps out at you is this, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. We, we live in a culture that doesn't like to say that, um, especially if it's doctrine they don't believe in, right? Um, because as, as we've stated, I mean, everything that you hold to is, is some form of doctrine, 
right? Um, but it, Acts 15 shows us that doctrine matters. The, this whole epistle is an argument that doctrine is vitally, critically, and eternally important. The whole Bible is proof that doctrine matters because the Bible is to correct our misunderstanding of God and creation and each other that we try to surmise through our own understanding, which is foolishness outside of God correcting it. Everything that Paul is saying is a proclamation that doctrine is eternally important. So, truth matters. Truth matters. It doesn't matter if you agree with that statement. Um, it, it's, it still matters, right? Have you ever noticed that in our culture, being spiritual is hip? Have you noticed that? Um, being spiritual in our culture is hip, right? It's the hip thing to be. We don't live, and I, and I say that because we don't live in an unspiritual society. We don't live in an unspiritual society. It's the hip thing to, to do is to act spiritual, you know? Hey, man, let's talk about astrology. Hey, man, let's, let's talk about the position of the stars and how that dictates What's going to happen to me today? Um, hey, man, let's talk about what your fortune would be and how cards and intuition controls our destiny. There's lots more examples, but, I mean, it's hip to meditate on nothing. Right? To try to, to, try to dig deep down and somehow meditate on nothing. But even when you're meditating on nothing, you're meditating on something. It's hip to pray to no one. I'm, it's, it's true. Like, it's, it's not uncommon for someone you know that is an atheist that will say, yeah, send in prayers your way. Um, it's, it's hip to be mystical in your conversations. We want, as a culture, to claim that we've been liberated and make it sound spiritual. I mean, you see it in commercials all the time. But what is not wanted within that whole bag of spirituality and mysticism is doctrine. That's what's not wanted. And doctrine matters. Truth matters. In that kind of system of spirituality and mysticism that our culture embraces, there's no room for absolute truth. And why is that? Because truth informs you regarding how you should feel about something. You can't just be willy-nilly if you're holding to truth. Because truth informs Everything you do and, and everything you feel and everything you say, truth informs that. And in that system, each individual is supposed to define their own truth, right? Man, I'm feeling down. Well, just do what moves you. That's a commercial that I saw the other day. 
Just, just do what moves you, right? Do what makes you feel right. Well, truth informs what should move you. Truth informs what should make you feel right. If you were on a plane, and before the plane motored out from the gate, the pilot got on and said, so we've been having some trouble with our engines lately. They have actually cut off a few times in the air the last couple of days, and we, we sure hope this doesn't happen again because it will most likely cause us to crash. Our mechanics have been real busy and haven't had a chance to repair anything lately. But we have a good feeling about today. As a matter of fact, we, we feel like we can say we know it's going to be a good flight. Right, Bob? Right, Captain. So just sit back and feel the warm fuzzies with us. What's going to happen? Are you going to feel the warm fuzzies with them? Are you going to raise your hand and start unbuckling your seatbelt and, and get off the plane? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Your knowledge of truth is going to kick in. That engines fail, and when they start failing and they're not maintained or worked on, they start failing more often, right? So no, no, knowledge of mechanics, as little as it may be, and I have very little, I know enough that when I hear that, it's time to get off the plane, right? I'm not going to buy into the warm, fuzzy feeling that the captain and the co-captain have. No matter how spiritual or mystical they want to make it sound about, it's going to be a good flight, we're going to get you there. My, my knowledge, as limited as it may be of mechanics, says this is not a good thing. So truth doesn't let you do whatever you want and feel good about. And so as a society, we want to feel good about what we're doing, so we don't want to hear truth. We'll, we'll, we'll spiritualize it. We'll, we'll make it mystical sounding and, and be mystics about it, but we don't want truth to inform it. When a culture's motto is do what makes you feel good, it is not a culture that will be very accepting of absolute truth. And suppressing, Paul, Paul knows the path of false these false teachers is a path that does not lead to liberation but slavery. Because our culture really, it's pushing this spirituality, and I, and I say that with, with spirituality and and mysticism, it's pushing that, and it's pushing it on our children. And, and what, what they hope to feel out of that is that somehow they're being liberated. But in reality, it's not liberating because only truth can liberate you. Jesus said that, by the way. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall liberate you. But we're, we're trying to be spiritual and mystical without truth, and it's not really liberating. It's bringing people into bondage, deeper into bondage. Paul understands that. Paul is trying to reach this church and say, the path that these false teachers are leading you down does not lead to liberation but slavery. 
And so what, it, what is at stake here is the th same thing that's at stake in our culture is this question, do you want freedom? Do you want liberation? Or do you want slavery? Because truth matters if that really matters. If that question really matters to you, then truth must come in and inform. And our propensity, and we see it here in the Galatian church, because Paul preached the gospel to the Galatians, they received the gospel with joy. There was fruit going on in the churches of Galatia, but somehow these false teachers come in and start teaching this works righteousness, and they start buying into it. And here's the thing, and I'll say more about it next week, but we have that same tendency. We have to see ourselves like we did the people of Haggai. We have to see ourselves as the people of Galatia. We have that tendency. Listen to what George Whitfield says. A Puritan preacher says this about our propensity towards making ourselves acceptable to God. He says this, before, before you can speak peace to your hearts, you must not only be sad for your sins, you must not only be troubled for the sins of your life, but likewise, you must be troubled over your best duties and performances. When a poor soul is somewhat, somewhat awakened by the terrors of the Lord, then that poor one, being born under a covenant of works, flies directly to a covenant of works again. As soon as he's awakened, he says, and he senses his need for God, he says, I will be mighty good now. I will reform. I will do everything I can. And then certainly Jesus Christ will have mercy upon me. As Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of the garden and sowed fig leaves together to cover the, their nakedness, so the poor sinner, when awakened, flies to his duties and to his performances to hide himself from God. Before you can be certain Jesus is in your heart, you must be brought to see not only that your sins must be a done away with, but your righteousness as well. You must see all your duties and all your righteousness all put together are so far from recommending you to God, so far from being any motive and inducement to God to have mercy on your poor soul that he will see them to be filthy rags and that God hates them and cannot but put them away if you bring them to him in order to recommend you to his favor. That is a powerful biblical truth. What he's saying is, is our natural propensity is when, when we start feeling the weight of sin is to say, I'm going to do better. Well, I'm, I'm really going to clean up my life and I'm going I'm to start going to church and, and I'm going to get religious and I'm going to get spiritual and I'm going to do all these things and then God will be impressed and, and God will have mercy on me. That's not the gospel. The gospel, as Whitfield says here, is that there's no matter how much good I can do and how much good my good is, it's not enough. And I have no righteousness and nothing to offer to induce God to have mercy. I have to abandon it and count it, as Paul said, as rubbish so that I might gain 
Jesus Christ. If you want true freedom, true liberation of spirit, true freedom of guilt, then you need to know what is actually being argued by the false teachers. And that's what I want us to look at is look at verse 6. Because this is a beautiful, beautiful statement. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Those four words are absolutely beautiful and critical. They added nothing to the gospel that Christ had given Paul to preach as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There was nothing missing. So you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. They added nothing to that. That's good news. That's good news. The other apostles didn't say, you know, faith in Christ, but, but we want you to be circumcised. Or, you know, faith in Christ, but we want you to be baptized. Faith in Christ, but we want you to do this, or we want you to do that. No, the gospel is that you are justified, declared blameless before God by faith alone in Christ alone, and that's it. Faith in Christ, period. Anything else destroys freedom. Anything else destroys freedom. Jesus plus anything, if the sermon title got put up, I'm sure it did. Jesus plus anything equals spiritual slavery. Paul, but even Titus, verse 3, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. I love that. I love that. There's your, there's your next verse for your wall. Right? It's, that, that verse is critical. Why'd you take him, Paul? Why, why would you take Titus? Because he was a Greek and he was uncircumcised. And they wouldn't have accepted him if circumcision mattered. But guess what? He came back to Antioch, accepted and uncircumcised. That verse is critical. Beautiful. That's why Paul took Titus. We'll see what they say about Titus. Titus was a living witness to the truth of the gospel that is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So, so what are the false teachers trying to add to the gospel? And I, and I want us to be clear on this because... It's going to be so important to understand this for next week. They weren't arguing that Paul wasn't teaching that we should obey the moral law. That wasn't what they were arguing. 
You can't read an epistle of the Apostle Paul and say, yeah, Paul said you could just trample underfoot the, the Ten Commandments. You could just, Paul's never said in any of his epistles that you're not supposed to obey the Lord, right? Matter of fact, when you, there's multiple places, tons of places in the epistles of Paul that you can go, and he says, if you do such things, you will not and cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, his motive for obeying, the gospel motive for obeying is different than what some teach. We don't obey the Ten Commandments in order to gain righteousness. We obey the Ten Commandments out of joy that we've been given righteousness in Jesus. But that's not what they're arguing. They're not saying, hey, listen, Paul's coming along and he's saying that, that you, you have to be moral people. He, he's, he needs to say that and he's not saying that. That's not what, that's not what they're saying. So what are they, what are they adding? They're, they're adding that you must keep the ceremonial law of God. This is what they're bringing. Circumcision. Dietary. All those ceremonial clean laws is what they're trying to bring on the church. Here's the thing. The moral law sets one apart ethically. Okay? That's important. The moral, the moral law sets one apart ethically. That's why you study ethics, right? The moral law sets you apart. If you're moral, you are set apart ethically from someone who is immoral. And the moral law it was for all of creation. All, all image bearers of God are under the moral law. Isn't that what Paul says in the opening chapters of Romans? So we, we see that in the whole of the Bible, but it, it, specifically in the opening chapter of Romans, that all of humanity is under the moral law of God. But what is the ceremonial law? The ceremonial law sets one apart culturally. It sets one apart culturally. It's the cultural customs of a people. So it is the customs of the culture. It's what sets one nation apart from the other. The ceremonial laws were how you could become clean. And therefore, and, and hear me on this, the ceremonial laws were set you apart culturally, right? Because they did things that the other nations didn't do, and here's what you're going to do so that you look different from that nation. And you're, gonna, you're not, not going to wear these types of garments because those nations wear those types of garments. So you're not going to wear those types of garments because I want you set apart from those other nations. Cultural customs in the ceremonial law. And it was, it was a way that you could become clean and therefore presentable, presentable before God. Do you, do you remember, like, I'm sure a lot of you, most of you uh, uh, have read through 
the, the clean laws, the ceremonial laws. I mean, do you remember how vast they are? I mean, you read through them and you're like, what? Like, how? Like, how, how can you have a job and remember all of that? Right? What, what's going on? I mean, you can't touch this or you become clean, unclean. You can't eat that and that and that and that and that and that or you become unclean. If you touch this, if you associate with that, if your body does this, you become unclean. You can't eat with these types of people or you become unclean. If you do this on this day, you become unclean. If you do more than this, you become unclean. The vastness is just it's overwhelming. Well, what, what are the ramifications of becoming unclean? Here, here's what the ramifications are. You couldn't approach God in worship if you were unclean. You couldn't enter the tabernacle if you were unclean. You couldn't join the kahal or the assembly, which is church in Greek. Church is not a new word in the New Testament. It's in the old. It's the kahal, the assembly. You couldn't join the assembly if you were unclean. And there were all kinds of things that you had to do in order to become clean again. And so you have so many of these laws that it was impossible for someone to keep as a matter of fact, if you go back and you look at the garments that the priests had to wear in, in order to approach God, you, you look at the, all the details and everything that had to be laid out, and, and these were called holy garments for the priest. But even after they put them on and they're wearing the, the prescribed garments that were made with precision and detail, there's even an offering for those holy garments. And there's a, a, an offering or a sacrifice for, for the things you don't remember, <laughs> right? Like, you're not going to remember every way you've come unclean, so here's another offering. And I, I'm not trying to make funny or, or, or belittle the, the Old Testament laws there. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm leading to this. What's the purpose of these? Two purposes. One is to show you that you are absolutely incapable of making yourself clean before God. There is nothing that you can do to remove your defilement, and what you need is something outside yourself to make you clean. And we know that the Old Testament system of sacrifices wasn't really doing that, right? Because Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats does not cleanse you of sin. So they were pointing out to you these, these clean laws, these cultural customs, ceremonial laws. They were pointing out to you that there's no way that you can ever make yourself clean. You need God to make you clean. You need God to give you a sacrifice that will make you clean forever. And that sacrifice is Jesus. 
There's a, there's a reason that the religious leaders came up with like fi over 500 extra laws to make sure that you would stay clean. The second purpose, they were to set up a hedge between the Jews and other nations. And so it was, it was, it was to help to make it hard to, to, to be around them to fall in love with someone from another nation because you were supposed to marry within Israel. It was supposed to make it hard to be seduced by the idols of other nations. It was to set up a hedge so that you would be wholly devoted to God and his people. So what now? What, what about these ceremonial law, laws now? We, we know from, from Hebrews and we know from Jesus that he fulfilled them. There's no, there's no need for ceremonial laws anymore. They've been done away with. Jesus Christ has fulfilled them. You can go Hebrews 9 and, 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 and other chapters in Hebrew. The ceremonial laws have not been abolished. They've been fulfilled in Jesus. So, were they worthless? No. Are they worthless to us? No. I got gotcha. you. What do we do with them now? What do we do with the ceremonial laws now? As Christ fulfilled them, we, we don't need to do them. What do we need to do with them now? We honor them. That, that's, that's what we do. We honor them. And I'm going to talk about next week how we honor them. We honor the ceremonial laws. Well, how? I mean, what, do we keep them? No. The way you honor the ceremonial laws is by trusting that Christ has fulfilled them on your behalf. Amen. That's how you honor them. You don't have to go in the shopping and check, well, let me see, is this cotton and polyester? I'm not supposed to wear two-blend material. We're not supposed to do that. We honor them, and we honor and recognize the use of them by saying, thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling them for me. And I would say this. If you want to dishonor the ceremonial laws, you can do that by trying to keep them. If you, if you, oh, I, I want to honor the ceremonial law, and so I'm going I'm to build this list of things. You're dishonoring them. And not only are you dishonoring the ceremonial law by trying to keep them, you're dishonoring Christ and saying he didn't really fulfill them. Galatians 2.6. And I'll, I'll end with this. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, these three words are so beautiful, and I pray that we rejoice in them, added nothing 
to me. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Right here, what we're seeing is the preservation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the unity of the apostles in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that everything that you need to do in order to be reconciled to God and brought into the family of God has been done by Jesus. And therefore, you can, dear saint, rest in Jesus. And you can honor him by resting in Jesus. Amen? Next week, we'll look at the ramifications. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the beauty of it and for the simplicity of it and for the simplicity of the gospel and for our acceptance in Christ alone. We are and have been made completely pure and undefiled by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as Mark comes up and leads us in the Lord's Supper, we can come to the Lord's Supper because of Jesus. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that it would just cause a deep and abiding joy in our heart for Christ's yoke is easy because he was able to say it is finished and we thank you for that Lord and we pray your blessings upon us that we might understand these truths and that it would just impact the way we live our Christian life, the way we interact with other Christians, the way we interact with unbelievers. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.